thousand years, okay? Let's go back to that early church. And before we start Acts 15, I, I have a little bit left on Acts 14. And if you would turn to Acts 14 first, a couple verses I want to go over, beginning with uh, verse 21. And you know this is as they are bringing their first mission to, to a conclusion. And they've been out on the mission field about two years. They've spent about 1,200 miles in mission, you can imagine. In this earlier chapter, he had, he had received a stoning unto death. And I believe he was dead. Personally, I believe that. And I believe that the disciples that were there with him prayed and God raised him up. But you can see the incredible sacrifice and persecution and how Satan, drawing a line in the sand, says, this, I'm going to stop this work now. I'm going to stop this church now. I couldn't stop Jesus, but I'll stop the disciples. I'll stop the missionaries. I'll stop the apostles. And, you know, this is a lesson. The point of this is this is the ongoing lesson for you. As you go through life and you come across these persecutions that Hayes spoke about this morning, the bottom line of why you come to church and why you come to Bible study is so that you become a triumphant Christian. Amen? Amen. All right? Not, not the kind of Christian that's going through life like this. Oh, it's, I've got a heavy load. You know, I want to see you be filled up and say, yes, I have things in my life that are rough. But you know what? I'm with God. I'm with God. And I'm going to overcome these issues, whatever they are, whatever they are, because he's there with you. And you see it here. You see it here. But you know full well that Satan would like nothing better than to destroy the whole church, individual by individual. And so here we are now as they are going back. They are beginning to retrace their steps on this mission field to churches where they've already established them. And they're going back. And let's read as to what they do, beginning in verse 21. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Circle that verse, strengthening, encouraging. How many times have I preached to you about being a Barnabas, about what your role is in life? Okay, and here you see the, the apostles themselves going back to the churches that they started and encouraging the very people that they brought the gospel to. So now it's not just bringing the gospel. Now I brought you the gospel, but then I go back and I encourage you. I encourage you and elevate you and tell you that I love you and that God loves you and that we are encouraging you to prosper and grow in the faith. Do you see how God plants the seed and then waters it? Do you see how this works? And, and so we see this so much in the early church, and these are lessons for us. And then here's what, what, what uh, Paul says. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Oh, yes, we do. How many times have I told you, take a look, you know, it's not, it's not just about God wants you to drive a big car or live in the biggest house on the block, all right? God, you look at the early apostles, the first 11 apostles, 10 of them, 10 of them were martyred, 10. And John, the only one who was not martyred, it wasn't because they didn't try to martyr him, they put him in a pot of boiling oil, all right? They put him in a pot of boiling oil. And after 45 minutes of in this boiling water where the curtains surrounding the pot go up in flames, 
and he's just paddling around. They pull him out. And under Roman law, you could not be executed twice. You could not. <laughs> and so, in fact, it's incredible. And so what happened was that because he couldn't be executed twice, he was sent into exile on Patmos. Did you ever wonder why? How did, this, how did he happen to get to Patmos? Why wasn't he executed? It wasn't because they didn't try. They tried. And even though you won't find that particular incident in the Bible, that comes out of reliable secondary sources. That's from his this own disciple, Polycarp. Polycarp, who was John's disciple, who spoke directly to Irenaeus. Irenaeus, who again is one of the early church fathers, who wrote about it. So we have very good provenance about this. So there it is. The first 11, how'd it go for them? Not so hot, okay? But you know what? Here's the deal. That's right, here's the deal. They're there. They, are the, they have their glory. They're there with Jesus, okay? And that's the point. And that's what we're about. And that's what this encouragement is about in, this, in, in our walk. Understanding that, yes, we will go through many hardships. And so Paul and Barnabas, then, what did they do? They appointed elders... For them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now this is, I find this fascinating because you hear people say, and I don't know where they get this, you know, I don't like this organized church business. There's too much organization. There's too much organization. You know, you didn't see organization in the early church. Everybody kind of was operating under the Holy Spirit. There was no organization. False. False. There was the organization of the Holy Spirit. Okay? You see here that they went back to these very early churches. They went back and they selected elders. Okay? They selected people who would be the leaders in those churches. They selected people who would hear from God and be the shepherds. Because every flock needs a shepherd. And that's the point, just as you heard it this morning. Again, they selected the elders. So when you think about the fact, I, you know, there's, there's, I like the fact that there's no organization. That is patently false. There was an organization, okay? Uh, it, obviously, we're not, we're not talking about some highly developed uh, organization, we're, but we're looking at the very early stages of Christian work. And so, and if those of you who think that there was no order in the, in the church, I commend you to read 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. You want to find out if there was order in the church? You'll see how Paul chastises the Corinthian church for effectively what had become anarchy in a church service. Okay? And he talks at length about that. So, believe me, folks, believe me. That when you are under the Holy Spirit, you have order. Amen to that? Amen. Believe me. Believe me. So uh, they have now selected their elders. And now after going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from Italia now, verse 26, they sailed back to Antioch. And remember, Antioch is in Syria that's one of the big churches in the area. That's where they began their missionary work, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together 
and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. A holy, prosperous time. Blessings galore. The church is growing. The Gentiles are being brought to faith. And Satan can't stand it. He can't stand it. And he will do everything in his power to uproot this movement. And just when you're getting blessed the most, just when you feel like you're on top of the mountain, I'm going to tell you something, that's when Satan has a way of shooting darts into you. And you're going to see what happens next. Because we're now going to come to the chapter, chapter 15, which brings us to the Jerusalem Church Council, one of the most poignant parts of the New Testament, because here is the section of the New Testament in this chapter where the Judaizers, where the Old Testament believers, where those people who said they were Christians, and I think nominally they were, but they came out of the Old Testament tradition. Some of them were Pharisees. Some of them were priests, but they were very much married to the Mosaic law. They were very much married to the rites of circumcision. And you're going to see how they would like to change the Christian doctrine and to impute to the Christian doctrine Mosaic doctrine and how it would have changed the entire tenor of what we do, what we stand for, what Christ came for. And I want to give you a timeline here for this. And the timeline is this. The Jerusalem Council is in the year A.D. 49. Cornelius was saved in A.D. 39. Okay? So, I do that for you because this is important. There's a 10-year period now in which Gentiles had been preached to. Gentiles had been brought to the Lord, okay? So now, now, uh, I wanted you to understand this because it sets up what we're going to hear next. And so beginning in verse 1, Acts chapter 15, some men, circle, some men, came down from Judea. These were not men who were sent there. These were not men who were prayed for and sent on a mission. These are just some misguided men from Jerusalem who I'm sorry to say were probably under the influence of Satan. They didn't even probably realize that they were. But this is what happened. They came down from the Jerusalem church and they came down to Syria and here's what happened. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa, where are you getting this from? I didn't see Jesus say that to Nicodemus. I didn't see any doctrine that you have to be circumcised, that you must first be a Jew. Are you saying that I must first be a Jew? I must first embrace the law of the Old Testament? the Mosaic Code, in order to be a Christian, you're undermining the cross of Jesus Christ. You understand what, what our gospel about, is about. Our gospel is about freeing you from the law. 
Listen, the law was given by a God to man to show man how wicked he was. The law was given to man so that people could understand this is the holiness of God. This is you. This is what God demands. This is you. If you want to understand how holy God is, you go back and you read those commandments. And you understand that not a human being ever on the face of the earth, save one, save one, ever lived according to that law. And so you, who have violated the law every minute of every day, now you want to take that law and put it as a yoke on Christians and saying to them that you must observe this first, in order to be a Christian? This is a, a complete destruction of our faith. You understand how serious this is. This is a serious, seminal moment uh, in our faith. And so we're going to see how they, how, this, how they came to defend against that. So continue reading with me, if you would. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church recognized this. The Antioch church said, this is a big deal. You have to go down there. We have to straighten this out. What are we as a church? What do we stand as a church? Is this what we have to preach? Because if this is what we have to preach, then we just wasted two years of our lives bringing all these people to Jesus, if this is what we have to do. And so down, down they go, uh, and it said, uh, the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So this must have been a miraculous meeting where they lay out everything that God had done, talking about the I'm sure that tens of thousands of people throughout the world in that, uh, that part of the world that have been brought to Jesus Christ through their mi mi uh, missionary work through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 5. Then some of the believers, and you can circle believers, who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, circle that. What are you saying, Brother John? There were believers who were Pharisees. Okay. Pharisees had come to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Whoa. You can just imagine what that was like. You can imagine. I would love to have been in that room. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that had to be like? Think about it. The early church fathers are there, the early leaders of the church. Here's Peter there. Right? These are men that walked with Jesus. Uh, there's James, the half-brother of Jesus there. James is now effectively the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And now they're in this room debating this issue. And in that room are Pharisees and priests, people who came out of the high, holy Jewish tradition, who say they're Christians. And it's not for me to say whether they were or not. I told you people are misguided, and when they're misguided, they could be under the influence of Satan. Not even realize it. Not even realize it. And they drop this bomb. 
They dropped this bomb. They must be circumcised, and furthermore, they must be required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Now, it doesn't tell us how long they met and considered this question, but I believe that this went on for hours. I just do. It was such a big deal uh, in which you have to remember that this church was still almost exclusively Jewish. Yes, Cornelius had become a member of the church uh, 10 years earlier, but you don't see too much Gentile influence yet. And obviously, Paul and Barnabas in their missions had focused on Gentiles, and that really is what brought this to bear, brought it up. And you, you excuse me. Well, Moses was their guy. You have to understand that. If you were a Jew, I mean, you, it, was, it was basically always referred to as the law of Moses. You're right. It is a, it is a funny way of, of phrasing it, but that's, that's how they viewed it. I mean, if you even speak to Jews today, they will tell you the Mosaic Code. Uh, because Moses, stand, you know, he stands tall in their faith. And Moses obviously was a great, great uh, uh, prophet used by God mightily. But let me tell you something, folks. We were delivered from the law. You were delivered. I mean, if your life depended on you having to live up to the law, folks, you're not going to heaven. You're not going to see Jesus. You're, you, know, you realize what this means? You couldn't possibly, possibly live up with the, with the law. Because think about it, and I said this before, there are not enough animals on the face of the earth to sacrifice for your sins. There are not. There are not. Because here's the deal. You would go in and you'd sacrifice. And you would confess your sins and you would do it. And you would walk out. And as soon as you got out the front door, you know what? You've already sinned. You might as well head right back in. I mean, and that is the very point that God understood and God knew. But he needed you. He needed you to understand that. And that's why he gave you the law. You see, it only took 1,500 years to drum that message into you. All right? 1,500 years for you to understand, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't sacrifice enough animals. There's not enough animals on the face of the earth. There's not enough blood to wash away my sins. Well, now there is. There's one. There's one. One sacrifice. One. Once, once and for all one time. And so this is such a big deal, I can't overemphasize this to you. And so after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, and I can just see hours must have gone up, gone by, and so I can just see him finally standing up. And here he is, the man who effectively God gave the gift to open up the church to Gentiles. He was the one who God gave the vision the vision of the tablecloth coming down from heaven, the sheet coming down, with all those supposedly unclean things that every Jew on the face of the earth would call unclean. But as God said, what I've created is not unclean. Eat. And so three times Peter argued, I, am a, I cannot, oh, I cannot, I cannot eat. And so now Peter is again reminding them of what happened. And so let's, let's follow along with him as he makes this great defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ against those who would want the Mosaic Code. 
Brothers, verse 7, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Well, there it is. There it is. I know that they're saved because they have the Holy Spirit. I saw it, and I have witnesses that were there with me. They saw it. They have the same gift that you have. And so God has fully embraced them and brought them in to our faith through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. In other words, folks, by faith alone, not works, not adherence to the law, not the fact that you got up every day under the law and you did 92% of the law, you got a great grade, you still fail. Okay? That's the point. Okay, oh, I've done all oh, the law, I've, I've done it. Really, you fail. One thing wrong, you fail. One part wrong, you fail. Because you have to understand the holiness of God. The holiness of God is something that you can't even define. You can't even understand it. Where God said, the only way humanity can be saved is if I send Jesus. And then, through faith alone in Jesus, you become engrafted onto the body of our Lord. And you then have, because of that process, because you are engrafted onto the body of our Lord, you have the righteousness of Jesus. But you only have it because he gave it to you by grace through your faith. It's an unbelievable doctrine. You don't see this in any other religion where through faith alone you are given the greatest gift in the history of the world. And so to debase it by going back into saying it must, it must be circumcised, you must adhere to the law of Moses, all you are doing again is restoring the old bromides about works. Works. Your works are meaningless. Your works are filthy rags. Your righteousness are filthy rags. And we have to understand, we have to get a sense of the holiness of God and what we're dealing with. And what we do, it's a very sobering element. And so he said he made no distinction between us, between Jew and Gentile, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the believers a yoke that we either, neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. Oh my Lord, you are testing God. Do you understand what it means to say you're testing God? In other words, you're challenging God. You are saying to God, no, no, no. No, that's not how we're going to do it. That's not, we don't think that's the right way to do it, God. We think we should go back to the law because we've had such a sterling record with the law. I mean, look how well we've done at the law. We are separated from the rest of the world by the law. Yes, you are. God gave you that to separate you, folks. You have failed miserably. 
And not only have you failed miserably, I gave you all of that. Why? So that when the Messiah would come, you would be the people as a nation who would take the Messiah and bring him to the world. And what did you do? You failed. You didn't just fail, folks. You were more than failures. You crucified him. You, you tried to destroy him. So when, when the Jewish people sit there in this early moment in time and use their relationship to the law, boy, that's a pretty weak argument even for human beings to make as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ, this elevated, elevated gift. And you see this, and you see Peter understood this. And so this is an incredible moment. Now, why do you try to test God by putting on the next something that our fathers could not believe? We believe, he goes, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And that's it. Through grace, unmerited, totally unmerited. You did nothing to deserve, to deserve it, but God gave it to you by grace. And now you want to take grace and you want to go back 1,500 years and tie it to the Mosaic law? And you want to, you want to go back to circumcision? When there was a reason for those issues at that time, when God was trying to carve them out as a separate people from the world, but that time had passed, and now God brought Jesus, and it's an entirely different age, but you want to go back because you believe you've been so successful? And so verse 12, you can imagine, after he got done making this speech, I can just imagine that the power of the Holy Spirit must have just pervaded the entire room. Uh, and... It's, uh, it says that the whole assembly became silent. Well, I bet they did. I bet they did become silent because you can imagine that in every person's heart, every person who really was a Christian, when they were there in that assembly, under the unction of the Holy Spirit and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit must have said, oh my, oh, I never really properly understood. I never really came to grasp with how great a gift Jesus gave us. I never understood totally the gift of grace, but now when I see, when I compare it to the law of Moses, when I compare it to what I had, when I understood the sacrifices that I had to do, the high ceremonial days, and all those animals that had been sacrificed, and all that blood that had been washed away, and yet I was still a guilty sinner. And I'm sure all of this was unsaid because the Holy Spirit works that way. And then it says... As we continue in verse 12, then the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Can you imagine? Then Paul and Barnabas get up and speak, and now they tell about the fantastic work of the Lord for two years all over the world. Paralyzed people walking, blind people uh, seeing. I mean, it's one thing after the other. God being raised up in every possible way. Thousands upon thousands of people, Gentiles, accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're hearing this. They're hearing this after Peter has just given that peration that he's just done. And, and so the Holy Spirit really had to be heavily in that room. When they finished, verse 13, James spoke up. And so now here you have James, the half-brother of Jesus, who effectively now was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And you remember James was not a believer. 
Jesus was crucified, James was not a believer. It was only after the crucifixion of Jesus that James, James came to believe. But you understand now how deep and, and sincere and convicted James is in terms of understanding the gospel. And so James speaks up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written, and this is in the book of Amos. There's a citation in the, in the study. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnants of man may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. And so clearly in Amos it's predicted, I'm going to call Gentiles. Gentiles will be called in this faith. So this should not have been a surprise to them. But it was a surprise to them. Uh, and though, so now he pronounces a judgment. And this indicates to me, again, his role in the church and his understanding of leadership, because effectively what he does is now he puts together a judgment that will go forward so that there will be a way for Jew and Gentile Christian to coexist. And we're going to talk exactly about what those issues are. And so he says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from three things. Food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And so now the question becomes, well, what is the significance of these three things? Why did he focus on these three things as a, as a compromise? And so let's, let's start with this. Well, we know that the prohibition uh, regarding uh, blood, eating blood, is in Leviticus chapter 17. Uh, we won't read it now, but if you want to read it on your own, you'll see God laid that out very, very clearly. And one of the issues that becomes uh, between eating blood and uh, food polluted by idols is that it became part of pagan worship. Many people even during this time, and I'm sad to say some Christians who, or people who call themselves Christians, would drink animal blood because they thought they would embrace the characteristics of the animal. So, for example, yes, so if you wanted to be strong or ferocious, you might drink the blood of a mountain lion. All right, if there was another animal that had a certain characteristic that you admired, you might do this. And so there were people that were doing this. And there were people that were, eat, that were going to pagan festivals. And it wasn't just that they were eating food. When I first studied this, it came to me, I, I said to myself, well, what's the big deal? I mean, how, how big a deal is it that you're eating food that came out of a pagan uh, function? I mean, food is food. It really doesn't seem like that would be a big deal. But I really didn't properly understand the significance of that until I... I studied it great, more greatly, and I I'd recommend to you, let's turn, if you would, to Revelations chapter 2.
And you know, this is the letter to the seven churches. This is where, where Jesus writes the letter. You know, well, it comes through John, but it's through a direct vision that John had on Patmos, in which he writes the letter effectively either chastising the churches or, or uh, encouraging them, but telling them things that they needed to do. And in, this, and in this chapter, this particular letter is written to the church in Pergamon. And if you would turn, if, uh, please, to verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What is that, Brother John? In the church? Balaam? We remember Balaam. Old Testament, bad, not good. Who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Oh my. Right in the very church, right in the Christian church, right in those seven churches, there were people who were still practicing idolatry. And how many times have you heard people say, I wish we had the early church. <laughs> I wish we were in the early church. Folks, let me tell you something. Not necessarily so, because there's one thing the early church didn't have that you have. This. This. And so we're going we're gonna to end our lesson at this point, and we'll bring, it, we'll bring it on next week at this point and continue it. But let's, let's go before the Lord in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the words that you've given us. I thank you, Lord, that you take these words and you apply it in our hearts and help us during this week to contemplate on them and to let these words grow, to strengthen us as Christians in everything that we do. I ask that these dear people be blessed in every way, Lord. Protect them, put a wall of protection around them, and bring them back safely next week. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.